0: Father, we thank you so much for your many blessings to us, above all blessings, the blessing of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And Father, as we're here to understand more of the truth that he's entrusted through the word, I pray the spirit of truth, your Holy Spirit, would be with us to guide our understanding this afternoon. Lord, help me to cover what I need to today. Give us all ears to hear and hearts to respond to the things that we learn, for we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Okay, um when you're giving Bible studies, there's a reason that you for example, there's a reason you study the law before you study the Sabbath. The Sabbath grows out of a study on the law. And what's really interesting is when you study with most Christians about the law, they're all for you. In fact, I did an evangelistic series and I had this elderly couple come and they were there's been a lot of attention given to the 10 commandments by Christians in recent years. Um They've had Ten Commandment days and Ten Commandment festivals and all kinds of stuff. Well, this elderly couple comes to our meeting, and they have these flyers that are all about the importance of the Ten Commandments. And the guy comes up to me, he's like, hey, do you mind if I pass these out to the guests? I'm like, go ahead, knock yourself out, right? They're all about the, the Ten Commandments until guess when? Then we get into the Sabbath presentation, and all of a sudden that night, they weren't all real happy about passing out their Ten Commandment things anymore, because now They're not practicing. And I'll I'll never forget, the the, the wife said to me, she was wrestling with this, and she said, but how can, I mean, your church, she says, our church is so big, and your church is so small. And how could my church be wrong and your church be right? And I'm like, look, you got the Ten Commandments right there. Mm -hmm. But your church is so small. And, you know, so people get hung up on these things, but the reality is, when we present the subject of the law to somebody, it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And they're right there with you. And, and it, it, it helps to make the impact when they hear about the Sabbath. Because as unpopular and as different as the Sabbath is, when once they've said, oh, the law of God, yeah, we need to be keeping the law of God. Yes, it's important for a Christian. Yes, it's the will of God. God's expressed will for the life of the Christian. When you get to the Sabbath, you wrestle through that. You don't have to like it, but you're going to be like, you, because that groundwork has been laid, and when the, when the, the law says, so you have to understand something, that there are certain subjects you present to people that they're already going to be turned off by, okay? People are predisposed. We're all predisposed to a certain degree. In other words, I may have a bias against something, and as soon as it comes up, I'm going to be like, oh, I've heard about this before. Oh, no, no, I'm not going to go there. There are other topics that you study with people that they all commonly agree on. And so when you start a series of Bible studies, you'll notice that the first several studies in the lesson are those topics that everybody can agree on, for the most part. They're not real, you know, they're not real threatening, they're not real, uh, you know, there can be conviction and that kind of thing. But you get into a study series, and what they do is, as people are studying through and they're like, yeah, that makes sense, yeah, that makes sense. They're not the kind of things that are controversial, And so what happens is you're gaining the confidence of people. They see that you're presenting what's in the Bible, and they agree with it. And it's important to do that. What do you think is going to happen if if I decide the first study I'm going to give is on the Sabbath? You're, You're going to lose your people, whether it's in a personal study or in a meeting or something else, because you haven't established any kind of rapport. They don't know where you're coming from. I'll tell you the worst thing you can do. And it happens all the time, as much as we warn against it. People will ask you questions all the time that they're not ready for the answer for. You'll go, you'll have, your church will do a meeting and, and, and somebody will listen to the first presentation and say, yeah, yeah, that was powerful. You, don't you guys, don't you guys keep Saturday? And uh, well, you know, yeah, well, hey, I want to know about that. And as much as the evangelist or the pastor ever said, hey, don't answer the questions prematurely, wait till we get to that topic it's like wow this is my opportunity and you share in all you can in five minutes because somebody asked you the question in this passing situation so you share with them the reasons without really getting into the bible and what often happens is the person says okay well i can see i don't want to do that and because they haven't got the weight of scripture evidence there's, there's there's nothing to bring that conviction and move them in that direction You want a person, especially when you're getting those controversial topics, you want them to see that it's biblical. This isn't your opinion. This isn't your church's opinion. And so a Bible study series is going to start out with those topics that establishes that, hey, we're teaching from the Bible. We believe the Bible. You're dealing with topics where their prejudices are down. And so by the time you start to hit the topics where Oh, there's a little controversy. You're teaching different than I heard over here. By this point, hopefully, they're seeing that, you know, you've been sticking with the Bible so far, and, and I'm going I'm to hang with you on this, okay? So, the, in the, it, like I said, in those first topics, you're going to be covering things that generally are not controversial. Um, you don't want to move all your controversial topics up front or you're going you're to risk losing that opportunity to build the confidence of the people as you're studying with them and let them see that you are a student and a teacher of the Word. Yes?
1: So, how do you um, graciously defer the answer to those without seeming that you're hiding something?
0: Okay, well, you know, one of the easiest responses is yeah. that, <laughs> that... And I love the way Pastor West does is, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. And... Uh, so there was a little bit of a, a, a little more enthusiasm there, but just let them know, hey, that's a good question, but we've got a whole topic coming up on that. We're going to go over that. That's a great, you know, a lot of people ask that question and we've got a study. I mean, where we can really take time and get into the Bible and, and answer that. And, and I, I prefer that we go over it then. Uh, people won't usually push you for that and say, no, I want an answer now. And so that answer is people are usually content with that answer because they're going to get an answer. When I'm doing personal studies with people, I actually will, from my get-go, when I'm giving a series of studies with somebody, we're doing sit-down studies, now it's not I'm not just dropping off at the door, I'll have them get a notebook or whatever they want, a note paper, whatever, and I'll say, get yourself something and you can jot down your questions because there are things that we won't be able to answer maybe right away because we're in the middle of the study, but I want to get to them, and so I'll have them start with a study notebook. And when I ask some of those questions, I'll say, hey, why don't you put that down in the notebook, and we'll get back to that. Now, I may say we have a study coming up on that, but I'll still have them write it down. And then there are times I'll refer back to that notebook, and I'll say, now, what was that question you had? And I may not do all of them, but I want them to know. See, by writing it down and me asking them to, first of all, it helps them know that I'm not just blowing them off. Secondly, it helps me remember what the question was, because I may not remember, that, and I have them write it in the notebook.
1: Jim? set up in your presentations an obvious situation where you get the group to agree that if the Bible says one thing and tradition says another thing which one are you going to go with? Yes. So that two or three lessons down the road assuming they're still there, and they've already agreed that that's exactly what they're going to
0: do. Yes.
1: That to be intellectually honest, when they reach the Sabbath question, the only conclusion they can come to is, I'm wrong. And and, and for someone to admit that they're wrong, and this is someone coming from outside the church. Right. It took me a long time to admit I was wrong. Yes. I didn't want to admit I was wrong. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to admit that I was uh, spent uh, sixty years or fifty some years of my life going down the wrong way. Okay. Yeah. So, do you early on we're a situation where for them to be intellectually honest, they've already agreed on a certain principle. Yes. So that when they get and... there, and they've already admitted that that's what they're going to do when they get to the situation like that. Right. That but... for them to back up down the road, it's hard.
0: Yeah, but, and I just want to ask you, just out of curiosity's sake, because I don't know, so when you did get to that place, did you try to back up down the road?
1: My last argument, <laughs> too, Sort of. My last argument was, what's the big deal? Yeah. One day, another day.
0: Right, but you knew.
1: Oh, I knew intellectually because and, you go searching, okay? Right. You can't find it. Right. You, know, you the little things that you can find. Yeah. Oh, they—they they had a meeting that's spent over in the Sunday, okay? Yeah, uh, the Lord's Day, right? But if you—if you're intellectually honest and say, if I've been going to church on Saturday all my life, and now I use those verses to try to argue to the guy next to me, hey, right. it ought to be Sunday. I it, it.
0: It, yeah, exactly. Well, and so what happens is, I—and I like your question, and yes, you'll find. One of the things that you're going to start to find, because we've just gotten started here, and as we go into the studies, you're going to start to see that each of the studies is laying certain groundwork. And it's the way that you put the study and prepare the study that lays a certain groundwork. Well, Cameron laid some groundwork this morning, and I'm going to touch on that before we jump into this study. This study is going to lay some groundwork as well when we talk about the Antichrist. So uh, the only thing I would say is even though you lay your groundwork well, so, that a person can't, if they're going to be intellectually honest, they have to admit I'm wrong. Doesn't mean they'll admit they're wrong. <laughs> or at least right away. Because of our And the fact of the matter is, and I like to remind people uh, when I'm preaching anyway, even coming into that in preparation, the Bible says, How many have sinned? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, how many of us are sinners? All of us, right? So, how many of us have been wrong? I mean, you know, sooner or later, you're going to find something in your life where you've been wrong. And that's not a criticism of anybody. That's an admission that we are exactly what God says. We are fallen humanity. There's an enemy who has been working to deceive us, and God is undeceiving us by his word. And there are things we're going to learn in his word, and I'll tell people that in a seminar or in a study. There are things we're going to learn in his word that are going to be different maybe from how we saw it before. That is the Lord opening our eyes to see something that the enemy of souls has tried to deceive us on. But you'll see that happen in a lot. In fact, that goes along with how the studies are in their particular order. So anyway, you'll notice a study order here, and there's a lot of studies. Now, just adding to that, that, with our Bible doc studies, you'll notice, just notice the first lesson is on Daniel 2. And the emphasis of that is trusting the Bible. You can also use Daniel 2 with an emphasis of we are living in the last days. It can come in, but the emphasis of the Daniel 2 we use right there at the beginning is like we've talked about, establishing their confidence in the Bible. And then the second one is on signs of Christ's second coming. And like Pastor Cameron was saying this morning, I mean, it's so obvious anymore. You're not going to have anybody saying, ah, that's not true. There aren't any signs around us. And so these are things that people, you're gaining their confidence. The Why Christianity study, I'm going to touch on on that maybe today, maybe, maybe tomorrow. And that's a study I wrote to establish some of what Cameron was talking about this morning, but just the way that I approach it instead of the way he approaches it you'll find that everybody approaches the studies differently, okay? So the way I wrote my studies is going to be different from the way Cameron did, the way that John Bradshaw did with the It Is Written studies. And what this means is, and I don't think there's a study exempt from this, that as you are going through, as you're going to, you've got an in-home Bible study, and you've got your Bible study lesson, I'm trying to find a lesson to, and you're going through your lesson and you're preparing your lesson, which... I'll talk about a little bit further in a moment, too. You should have reviewed the lesson before you ever go over it with somebody. <laughs> That's, that should be obvious, but I've done a lot of training over the years with the Manual Institute. And even after sitting in class, we'd have labs where the students would break up in groups and they would give studies with lessons they had not prepared. And it's very easy to tell who has not prepared by reviewing their lesson. But let's say you've gone through your lesson. It's not uncommon. going through a lesson that you might come to a question and here's the question and then there's a text and you read that text and you think that text what does that have to do with that question that makes no sense at all okay now maybe it's a misprint maybe not i don't know i've run into there's nothing worse than coming into that in the middle of your study for the first time and they're saying so and they and they you know you go through the text and i've had i've watched students do it they'll read the question and then uh, they'll go to the text, and then the person, you know, and the person's been silent the whole study. It's like question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. Here's the, You get to that when you ask the question, and then you have not read the text, and they say, what does that have to do with the, and you're like, oh, you know, this is, of all, why couldn't we just move past it like every other question in the lesson? And they ask you, and if you didn't prepare, then you've got to fumble through that and say, you know, it still could be awkward if it's, if it's it doesn't have to be, if, if I did review the lesson and I'm sitting down there and the person says, that text, in fact, I won't even go there. I'll tell you what I would do when I'm preparing my lesson. If I don't understand where it's going, I'll either come up with another text that makes that point or I'll just skip that question. And I'll just tell the person, I may, I may just bump over it and say, for sake of time, we're going to go to the next one here, or I may say, <laughs> which is not false. Because it would take a lot of time to explain it. Or, or I may just tell them I don't know where the author was going with this one. And so we're going to, I don't know what, I mean, the person who wrote the lesson. But there is another text, and, and that's what I'll do. You want to be honest in your studies. You're not, you, nobody, including pastors, studies as a, as a know-it-all genius. There, I, I have no problem telling somebody, you know what, I just, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure. It's funny, I have people ask me that at camp meeting. And I'm sure our other pastor, Pastor Cameron, I'm sure this happens to you a lot people figure you're a pastor, you know, right? <laughs> and they ask you the bizarre stuff and you're just like, "No, I don't know that one."
1: for us to say, "Well, let me ask my pastor get back."
0: And that wouldn't be the best idea sometimes. Anyway, so the study order uh, with my first studies, the the, the, the now I have one on the godhead. Now this one I'm going to try to touch on this this week a little. This has become more and more controversial. I don't understand it for the life of me. Uh, why, why there's so much issue over the Godhead because the scripture's clear on it. But we'll touch on this a little bit this week somehow. How to study the word. I mean, it didn't used to be real controversial. Now it's getting more so. Uh, how to study the word. Even the great controversy. The great controversy is not a real controversial. Stu- it's an eye-opener for people because they haven't heard it before. So salvation. All of these studies, these first, in this set, the first eight studies are not controversial. And so there are times when I may leave one out. I don't always give every study in this list when I'm giving studies. There may be times when I'll leave the Godhead study out, or I may leave the prophecies of the Messiah out, or I may move, juxtapose them and move them around a little bit. But when I start getting into the, some of the stuff like the, 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 the law and the Sabbath and the Antichrist and the New Covenant and some of these things, I don't want to be moving those around as much, Okay. And that's all I'm going to say about that for right now. I will refer you to, in, in the binder, you have the Bible doc studies, and then Cameron showed you in the back. You have copies of, of his um, Unlock Revelation outline, so it's not question-answer format like a study would be. Cameron, do you have this on Audioverse? Yeah, so you can get on Audioverse and hear his series, and now you have handouts for it. But it, it's helpful... To, when you 're reviewing to give a lesson it 's helpful to get the different perspectives so these and of course when he teaches he 's going to be teaching more from this perspective so what he covered this morning study number three did God make the devil study number four, God on trial um, those are the primarily what he covered this morning and then later on this week he 's going to cover the millennium he 's going to do it more from his format here that 's why you have all of those lessons at least one of the reasons okay now moving out of well you 're going to need the binder in a minute for the study but I want to move to this other handout. What I have done, I had a child personally, um, I had a problem with the It Is Written study order because they had the Antichrist study as number 18. And when you're studying, especially from the three angels' message standpoint, the Antichrist is a big part, a big part of a lot of what you study, and to throw it down at number 18 didn't make a lot of sense to me. Now, sometimes you have to be careful because if you were to move a study earlier, that study may bring something up that you don't want brought up yet. So, like I could say, you know what? I'm going to move, and that's what I did. You'll notice if you look at this little handout that after number seven, quality time, which is a study on the Sabbath, it comes number eighteen, the mystery of the be- the mystery beast of Revelation, the one we're going to go over here this afternoon. You, the the problem you could run into is. Let's say, now we've covered the Sabbath, but we haven't covered the secret rapture. If that lesson 18 brought up something about the secret rapture, I move it up in my study series and I say, hey, I'm going to cover this now. Oops, that study opens up something else that I don't want to get into yet. So if you're moving a study in the event that you were to do it, you don't want it. You want to make sure it doesn't preempt what you're going to cover too early. But the reason I move that up is you'll see why as we get into the lesson here, it's it really lays, it helps lay groundwork, and I think it comes in late in this particular set of lessons, so I moved it, and I did that with the uh, consent of our conference, so I, I, I give this out as, you can put in your thing there as an alternate, you don't have to give them this way, but it's not going to hurt you to give them in this order, I think it would help it to give that, seri- if I'm giving that series of studies, that's what I'm going to do, I'm going to come to number seven, I'm going to say, you know, our next lesson, I'm going to study this one, and I'll have them pull that out and prepare that lesson, okay, um, and then I move the second coming study. So you see after number 9 comes number 13. Um, and part of that is, a, is a, you know, what you have if you look at 13 and then I have 10, you have the second coming, death, millennium, and hell. That's sequential. If you're studying the scripture, what comes first? The second coming of Christ, right? And then you've got to understand the, the whole idea of death and resurrection. I suppose you could flip those around. But the uh, millennium is after the resurrection, And then hell is after the millennium. And so I just changed the order for that, for that reason, okay? Um, And then I moved Babylon. If you go, you'll see two studies that say BD-23 and BD-24. You see that? There's one, that's our Bible docs number 23 and 24, the one on Christian entertainment and lifestyle, and the one on Christian dress. Why? Because they are not in the It Is Written study series. And if I want to study those topics with somebody, I'm going to have to use another study. So I use my Bible doc study. So anyway, you don't have to use these Bible doc studies, but you're going to have to at some point, if you're going to go through and prepare somebody for baptism, you're going to have to cover the topics of Christian entertainment and lifestyle and Christian dress. You're going to have to get that somewhere, and it's not in that particular set of lessons. And so um, you'll want to pick it up from somewhere else. So that's what I did there. And then and then after that, I, I put the fall the It is written lessons have the Mark of the Beast, the US in Prophecy, um, the Remnant Church all before Babylon, which makes no sense to me as far as the order goes. I'm not going to say too much about that. You'll get more of that when we get to those topics, and you'll see why we have them. And most, most of your study series, most of your evangelistic series will have the subject of Babylon before the remnant church, because Babylon has come out of her, my people. And it's like, where are we coming out? We're coming out of something. What are we going to do now? come into God's remnant. I mean, it just makes more sense. You're coming out of the one going into the other. Here's the false church. Here's the true church. They switched it around, so I switched it around. Anyway, that's what that is for. Now, our topic this afternoon is the Antichrist. And this is more important than some people would would take it to mean. I'll tell you something else. This is going to be one of the hardest studies that you give because for two reasons. You're identifying the most, the biggest, most powerful, most popular Christian church as the Antichrist power. As much as all the Protestant reformers did it at one time, who incidentally were all Catholic, you know that, right? There was no Protestant church. They were Catholics. The reformers were Catholics who said, I don't believe our church should put, put itself above the Bible. And, and, they became known for their protest, and they were called Protestants. Well, you know, Protestants today, if you followed news at all, in fact, I think Pastor West was talking about it this morning, uh, Protestantism is almost gone. In fact, we did uh, when, we, when I was in Coldwater, uh, Michigan, I went to the prison. We had a prison ministry there, and I'd go into the prison, and the prisoners have to sign up for who, which church group they're going to be with. They can't just go to any group. They have to sign up for a group, and their options were Catholic, uh jehovah's witnesses uh mormons protestants and seventh-day adventist i'm like pardon me we're we're the only church that's still protesting and we weren't called protestants we weren't with the protestants but i'm going to tell you many protestant churches don't even know what that word means don't know what we were protesting and and so when you talk about the catholic church fitting that description of the antichrist power that's hate speech today uh, that's just where we are. And it's get, so it's getting harder and harder to try to, as much as you can try to throw in the caveats, and you've heard a speaker do it and say, look, we're not talking about the people. We're not saying Catholic people are bad. I know some great, pa- I've got family members, whatever else you're going to share, you're still, at the end of the day, it's hate speech. Some, kind of, some, uh, some places in the world have outlawed that to this day, and it's going to get harder, not easier. And so you're sitting in that Bible study and the, the, other, the other challenge with that study, so you're going to be sharing something in the study that has a lot of potential to be, uh, it used to be something that would be offensive to a Catholic potentially. What's really funny is Catholics are generally more open to it than, than uh, Protestants are, because they know, if they, especially if they know anything about their church. They're like, yeah, I've always wondered about that. And, and some, anybody here that was Catholic and you've become... And you're like, yeah, I always wondered why I went to the priest and things like that. Um, so, but anymore, when, like I said, with Protestants, I mean, with anybody, it, it tends to be uh, something that has a tendency to be offensive. And it takes you, it's one of the longer studies. So it's going to take all your study time just to cover the points. And as much as you'd like to explain, you know, now this is what it's really all about, and there's this great controversy, and there's the, you know, and this is kind of the end game for it, and everything. As much as you want to throw in all the other explanation, you really just have about enough time in your Bible study to go, here are the points, and this is Roman Catholicism. <laughs> and, you, and, and what's more important is, that has to be clear to them. And there comes this uncomfortable time when, okay, we've gone through all the points, you know, and you've got to convey, and I, you know, it's funny, I'll do it in a meeting, I'll put all the points up, and you can't miss it. Let's see, here's a church that, we know this is a a, um, a power that is a professed Christian power that rose to power after 476 A.D. that came up in Europe, came up from that fourth empire, Rome. It grew out of Rome to a position of universal power, claims the authority to forgive sins, claims the authority of being God on the earth. I mean, where are you going to go, right? Everybody knows. I'm like, so who is it? (laughs) And I always ask the crowd, and they're just like, "Mm," they're looking at each other because nobody wants to say it. But at any rate, uh. It's got to be made clear, and there's a point where you just want to crawl under a rug. Now, some of you are like, hey, I don't have any problem with it, but a lot of you, I feel uncomfortable when I get to that point, and I've just got to, because I know the potential, but I guess what I'm telling you is, this is key, that it's clear to them that the Bible is pointing to the Roman Catholic system. You can call it different things, sometimes I call it the medieval Roman church, or the Roman church, you know, but at the end of the day, it's got to be clear to them that we're talking about Catholicism as a system. And so, that makes for, uh, it makes for an uncomfortable study. But you can't give the three angels messages without it. You can't. And the reason is, well, I'll get into that in just a minute. I want to say one other thing before we actually jump in. I'm going to put the key points of the study on the board. I'm going to have you, I gave the handout. For those of you who don't have the handout, you want to turn to your, your Bible doc study that says uh, the Antichrist and the change of the Sabbath. And so... You can look at the index there. It's after long grace, obviously after the Sabbath study. And get ready to roll on that. But I want to make one more point here. And that point is this. When you are giving Bible studies, a Bible study, whatever lesson you're using, you could be writing your own lesson that you wrote. You could be using an it is written lesson or an Emmanuel lesson or some other lesson, amazing facts, landmarks of prophecy, or whatever. But at the end of the day, A Bible study lesson is only a tool, and tools do not work. Tools require workmen to work them. Tools require a skilled laborer to use them. That's you. The study will never do the work that you do. Okay, you need to understand that. So when you're, that's why I said when you're going to give a study, if you're preparing your study... You have the ability, if you're going through that study, you're saying, you know, I think there's a text, like even when my brother was giving his five points up here, you know, uh, God's love, man's need, uh, God's gift, man's acceptance, God's miracle. He put his text up there, and one text I thought, well, I wouldn't use that, I'd use another text. That's just me. You have the right to do that when you're giving a study. You might, you might hey, I like this a good text, but I have a text I like to use. Use it. You're the one in charge. So when you're giving a Bible study, you just need to understand that as you're preparing it, you've got, you, got, you understand the truth that you're conveying. You can modify. I mean, you know, if, you're, if you're changing everything, you may as well write your own. But the point is, you, the, the, the study is a tool to be used by you. And that's why I said, if you want to substitute a text, if you want to look at a question, it's like, I'm not, I don't know where they're going with that, I'm going to go somewhere else, you can do that. There are times where you'll insert something. You know, the study, hey, it's great, but I wish they'd gone to this one text. Add it. Say, hey, there's another text I'd like to look at. And let's go to this one. You can do that. that doesn't, you, don't, you don't have to get stressed out about, you're not messing anything up by doing it. Throw that in there. The Lord will guide you to do some of those things. And, um, you know, Jim had mentioned yesterday, he went through the, the It Is Written lesson on salvation, but he talked about adding that text from James 2, where James says um, that the, even the devils believe and tremble, right? You believe there's one God, you do well. Even the devils believe and tremble, just as a qualifier to say, yes, it's important. We're saved by believing. We're saved by faith. But there's a counterfeit faith. And so he said, I would throw that into the study. You'll have texts that you might do that with. Feel free to do that. You are the skilled laborer that is using that study as a tool. Does that make sense? Okay, now I want to get into our study here on the Antichrist so that we actually do get through it. Uh, let me put my four, the four points that I am wanting to establish in an Antichrist study. And, and I'm going to briefly touch on these, and then I'm going to show you how they unfold in the lesson. Okay, the first point that I want to make is the Antichrist is the counterfeit Christ of a counterfeit Christianity. You understand, perhaps... That for a lot of Christians, they believe the Antichrist is going to be some anti-opposed to Christianity, atheistic something power that's going to come in from the outside of Christianity. No, it's not. The Bible says it's going to be a, a, a professed Christian power. And that's important for people to understand. And we'll explain that as we go. Okay? That's point number one you want to establish. Number two point that you're going to establish is Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are parallel. Okay, and that just that just helps to establish where you're going in the identity of the Antichrist without having to do a lot of work, and I'll, I'll explain that as we get to it. Number three, you want to show that the identifying characteristics of Antichrist are fulfilled by Papal Rome. Number four, You want to show that the little horn of Daniel 7 and the first beast of Revelation 13 are the same power and this is wordy point to the last conflict in the great controversy. I'll explain that. As we go through, that's really, those are, those are the points you're wanting to get across, okay? This is why, now we did our studies a little bit out of order, and you'll see that even in, in camera's order as you look through uh, the studies that he did, the next, the, co- the ones he covered this morning, the next one in his series is on salvation. Typically we cover great controversy before salvation, Great controversy basically identifies the problem of evil, the origin of evil, and then salvation is the solution to evil, okay? And so the reason we switched them around is because I knew Cameron needed more than the two hours in the afternoon, so we flipped it and had Jim just... Do... But typically you do, you would have covered a great controversy, and then the plan of salvation as you come into... Um, and you're not going to come from there directly into the Antichrist, but once you've come into the Antichrist, you've covered the great controversy. And so you'll notice as Cameron was going through that, in most of your great controversy, in any good great controversy study, you're going to have covered Lucifer's desire for worship. You're going to have covered um, his, his uh, uh, you know, what his angle was in the great controversy. And so, when you're coming to the Antichrist, what you're looking at, what we're looking at with the Antichrist is we're looking at a puppet that the devil uses to finish his and accomplish what he started in heaven. That's, that's what we're looking at. The Antichrist is, is the devil's front man at the end of time. That's all it is. And so, and I mean, p- people don't grasp that. And there's great controversy. You want to worship from the beginning. How's he going to get everybody to worship him? Well, he's not going to show up with a pitchfork and horns and say, I'm the devil, and by the way, you want to sign up for my church, come over here. No, he's going to pass himself off as a Christian power, and this is what the Bible foretells, and it's in, in behind it all, this is why it tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you can turn there even though it will be coming up in, in, in uh, the study. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I didn't... You know, this is is one of those passages Christians are universally agreed. When I say universally, that doesn't mean every last Christian on the planet, but the majority of Christians believe that 2 Thessalonians 2 is pointing out the Antichrist power. Now, I didn't highlight... I've got Daniel 7 and Revelation 13, but I didn't bring up 2 Thessalonians 2 just because it's hard to cover it all in one study. But in 2 Thessalonians 2... It describes this Antichrist power, in fact, this will be one of the first ones in the It Is Written lesson, Um, as one who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, verse 4, or that is worship so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Notice verse 7 says, the mystery of what? Now, some Bibles say iniquity, the the actual uh, Greek word would translate lawlessness, which is why... Uh, New King James has it that way. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so till he's taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed. Now this is talking again about the Antichrist. Most of your Christian friends agree with that. Notice verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is what? According to what? The working of who? Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. You see the similar language in Revelation 13 when we get there in a little bit. In other words... This is the power the devil works through at the end of time to get his way. Okay, that's, that's what we're looking at we're talking about the Antichrist. Now, we'll, we'll start the study in, in the beginning. Um, and I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to use the it is written lesson. So let me talk about um, this point here before we dive into the lesson. Let me talk about the first two points. And we'll see this in the lesson. In, in, uh, in ancient Israel, God had established a system to teach them salvation. What was that system? Okay, that was a sanctuary system, right? God gave them the sanctuary. Paul in Hebrews chapter uh, 9 says that that system was a, a figure that was to teach the plan of salvation. And uh, Pastor Daniel will be talking about that, I think, on Wednesday morning. When God gave that, in fact, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, right outside the Garden of Eden with Cain and Abel, how many of you have ever read the book Christ's Object Lessons? Okay, there's a chapter in Christ's Object Lessons called The Two Worshippers. And it goes over the Pharisee and the publican that You remember the two men that Jesus mentioned? They came to the temple, and the Pharisee, he said within himself, I thank God that I'm not as bad as other men, like this person, that person, the other, and I do all these good things. And then he said the publican wouldn't even so much as lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat on his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What's interesting is Ellen White says that those two worshipers include all the worshipers of God to the end of time and trace all the way back to Cain and Abel. When Cain and Abel came before God and they offered the sacrifices way back in Genesis, there were characteristics in Cain and Abel's worship that were the characteristic of the true and the false systems of worship throughout the Bible. And the two worshipers fit in that. The worshipers, uh, uh, Elijah versus the worshipers of Baal on Mount Carmel fit into that. And here's the thing, you had... Abel, who, because of his faith in God, came before God and he offered the sacrifice of the lamb that God required, right? It was a a sin offering. You remember what Cain brought before God? He brought the fruits of the ground, which were a thank offering. And uh, I don't want to get too far into that, but here's the point. God set up a system of offering to teach let me ask, and you should all have this one. Who did the offering represent? What did the lamb, in the case of Cain and Abel, represent? It represented Christ, right? It pointed forward to Christ. The animal sacrifice is pointed forward to Christ, who what? Who gave Christ? God gave Christ, right? And so when the worshiper came with the animal to worship, what they were to understand is that animal was symbolizing what God was giving to them to save them. Now, the heathen world also had animal sacrifices. You're aware of that. And when I say heathen or pagan or whatever, I'm just talking about the non-worshippers of God. They worship whatever else. They had animal sacrifices. They had human sacrifices. They had whatever. What were their sacrifices supposed to do? Okay, God was angry with them. And they were bringing their sacrifices. to say, look, God, I'm bringing you this. Now will you accept me? Now will you love me? Now will you forgive me? Okay? So in other words, in their mind, they were giving sacrifices to God to get God's favor when in reality God was giving a sacrifice to man to win man's favor. A little bit different, right? Are you following what I'm saying? They're diametrically opposed. True worship was the God of heaven taking an initiative to save fallen man when fallen man did not even want to be or think about being saved. The false system of worship was fallen man trying to earn God's favor with whatever he could give, whether it be the sacrifices or the works of his hands or whatever, okay? And so the devil, what the devil did is he took that picture that God was trying to give of himself giving his son to save man and he flipped it around with the pagan sacrifices and made the people think that God was just an angry God who needed his pint of blood or his quart of blood or whatever to be appeased so he would love man are you following that now what happened is if you go through ancient Israel when Israel you know how many of you've read in the old testament passages where God warned his people about mingling with the nations Don't mingle with the nations. Don't make covenants with the nations around you. Don't get caught up with the nations around you. Why? Well, because they'd get caught up in idolatry, we say, because they'd get caught up in worldly practices, right? And they would do all of these licentious things and everything else, and that's true. But here's what I want you to understand. In them getting caught up with the nations around them, what happened is, and you'll see this in the Old Testament, God's people still worshiped God, but they began to worship him like the heathen. And the animal sacrifices that used to tell them that God loved them and was saving them became their appeasement of God, just like the heathen sacrifices. And Ellen White says that that was the devil's whole purpose, to take that that sacrifice. She says that he looked at the sacrificial system and the devil, and he read in that system God's communication to man of salvation. He said, I've got to mess this thing up. And so he flipped it around. And he got Israel to mingle with the nations. And as they mingled with the nations, it didn't just change the way they lived, it changed their understanding of who God was. And once they understood God differently and they understood the character of God differently, it gave birth to all of that atrocious lifestyle that the heathen lived. Okay, the lifestyle of the heathen is an outgrowth of their misunderstanding of God. Are you following that? Now that didn't just happen in ancient Israel, see, because when we come into the apostolic church, In fact, there's a passage, I don't have it in front of me, but Ellen White talks about the sacrificial system, and she said it was so perverted when Christ came, she said the entire system had to be swept away. It lost its ability to teach God's people because of the perversion. And so Christ comes, he he sets the truth in its true light, he clears away all the error of tradition, all the errors of paganism that had come in from his people, wandering around with the heathen for so many years, he brings the truth out in its fullness. He's, he commissions his apostles to go preach the everlasting gospel. They preach, they understand the gospel. And then what happens? After Jesus ascends to heaven, after the apostles die off, the church begins to think that it needs to win the concession of the pagan nations. Right? This is the early, this is the dark ages, right? And so in the early Christian church, but not early enough where the, now the apostles are passed off the scene. The Christian church begins to try to make concessions with the world around. And we know this from history, right? We're we're going to try to get the pagans to worship in our Christian church with us. Well, what can we do to do that? I suppose we could take their pagan statues and bring them into the church and we'll rename Jupiter St. Peter, right? How many of you are aware of this history? So the church began to take these pagan things and bring them into the church. And we'll take the pagan day of worship Sunday, And we'll bring it into the church and call it the Lord's Day, right? And in their attempts, and don't miss this, in their attempts to bring, to mingle with the pagan world and bring paganism into the church, once again, they flipped the picture of God or the devil flipped the picture of God, just like it in the Old Testament. And now worship becomes what I'm going to do to earn God's favor instead of God giving a gift to save my soul. And this, this is at the heart of what was wrong with Catholicism. Everything else grew out of it. Catholicism, the Antichrist power, you've got to understand this. The word Antichrist, and I'm not going to look this up. I'm going to give you a reference here. I wrote it down somewhere. The word Antichrist only appears in the Bible four places. In the letters of the Apostle John. 1 John 2, verse 18. And verse 22. So 1 John 2, 18 and 22. 1 John 4, 3. And 2 John 7. It's interesting that it's never used directly in connection with Revelation 13 and what have you. The word antichrist means what? Okay? Now antichrist, anti, and we think of anti, anytime we talk anti, anti is against, right? Mm. Well, it, it does have that meaning, but what a lot of people miss is the word anti in the Greek actually means in the place of. It's against, but it's against in the sense of I'm going to take your place. I'm, I, I'm, in other words, what's that? Yeah, you've got, so the Antichrist, the very term Antichrist is somebody who is in the place of Christ. And that's why I say that the Antichrist is a counterfeit Christ of a counterfeit Christianity. What's happened is the devil has taken, let me ask you, what was God's? That, that sacrificial system that God intended to teach his people about who he was and his love and salvation, what was it made up of? Tell me some of the elements, some of the parts of the sacrificial system. Okay, well, yeah, think of a table of showbread, labor, altars, incense, priests. Let me ask about Catholicism. Right, you don't go to most Protestant churches and have altars and priests and incense and, and the sacrament. But what do you have in Catholicism? You have the, the the this these elements that God intended to teach one thing, and now they're in the church, and you're going to count off rosary beads and you're going to do so many you know uh, 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 whatever to earn God's favor. Right, and so you've got a and and here the people are going and they're like, well, this is supposed to be Christianity and they're going to this system for salvation that can never save anybody besides the fact that it is perpetuating the picture of God that Pastor Cameron was talking about this morning that the devil brought in with a great controversy. And so the reason that God is identifying this in prophecy and that we're identifying it with people so that they understand that there's a counterfeit and that they they can be, you know, disillusioned, if you will, and get a clear picture of who God is. I'm going to tell you something. The most monumental change in my own Christian experience. Let me finish a thought here. It didn't end with Catholicism. It didn't end with Catholicism because Catholicism gave birth to Protestantism in a lot of ways. Let me rephrase that. Catholicism, the Protestant churches never came out fully of Catholicism. And so they made their advances. But I'm going to tell you that there is still, and this is the difference between the two worshipers, between Cain and Abel, between the two worshipers in the temple, between, you know, in in Elijah, and between those who receive the mark of the beast and those who receive the seal of God. All the way through, one group have a mindset of a vindictive God that they're going to appease. And I'm going to tell you, you're not going to have, a Christian today is not going to tell you that. They're going to be like, hey, I'm, I'm going to church to appease God. Okay, But what they will do is they'll argue with you about why you would bother keeping the Sabbath, that the law is done away because we can't keep it and, and all of these things. Well, what are they getting at? And, and we get into this, and I think uh, my brother Jim brought it up, or somebody brought it up earlier, this whole, we get into these discussions about what salvation, what's a salvation issue and what's not. What is that about? Like, why are Christians discussing whether something, that hey, you know, le- le- uh, is my diet a salvation issue? Is your diet a salvation issue? Why do we have discussions like that? And I think it was Jim who said it, that if God is telling us this is what pleases me, why do I care if it's a salvation issue or not? I'll tell you why. When I was in high school, I hate to admit this, but I was, I was of the mindset that I would do whatever it took to get by and get my diploma. Okay? I wasn't the overachiever. Okay? Okay? I could have. I could have done very well. But I would always, hey, tell me what i got to do to get by. Now, why does a person do that? And it's not just limited to high school. It's a lot of things. Why am I asking for the bare minimum? Why does somebody ask for the bare minimum they can do? Because they don't like doing it! Right? And when I'm saying, is that a salvation issue? The reality is, I'm basically saying, look, I don't like serving God. Tell me what the least amount of services I can give him and get by. Well, that betrays the reality that you're worshiping on Cain's altar when you're thinking that way. You're worshiping in that mindset that it's an appeasement. And I'm going to give him, what what do I have to give him? What do I have to give him? Tell me what i got to give him. And I'll give him that much and no more. When you're worshiping God and you realize that everything, see, when you're worshiping from the perspective of a, of a, a Cain, for example, and you're appeasing God, then everything you do in the service of God is for him, not for you i got to change my diet for Him. i got to change the way I dress for Him. i got to change the music I listen to for Him. But when you are worshiping the correct way, you say, God is telling me about my health and the way I, I exercise and eat and what have you for me. The requirements of God in health are a gift from God to me, to help me. The requirements of God for entertainment are for me. They're a gift to me. It's not me earning something from God. It's God saying, look, I want you to have this gift so your life is rich and full. And now am I going to be like, oh, do I have to do that, God? No, I want the blessing, right? Are you following what I'm saying? So these two mindsets, these two, this, is, this is what we're going to have at the end of time, these two worshipers. So the antichrist just brings that out. The system, the Antichrist system has infected Protestantism as well. And there are a lot of Christians, they can talk and sing all they want about the love of Jesus. But the reality is deep down, they're going to do the bare minimum to get by. Because it's not there. There is no relationship with Christ. They talk all day long about the relationship with Christ. But as as it's been brought up already, the the highest expression, the highest form of expression of love is obedience. You ever heard the the, the wedding... I've never seen it because in all of my time in ministry, maybe it's been blotted out and I've heard it, you know, but maybe some of you can testify to this. But wedding vows used to have love, honor, and obey. Did it ever do that? I, I've played pranks on guys before. In fact, there was a friend of mine, but when I was not, uh, when I was a part time pastor, but I had my, I was able to solemnize marriages, and I was in Ohio and I worked with a guy, one of my coworkers, and he said, Hey, you're a pastor, hey, can you marry, do a wedding for my wife and I? So I met with him beforehand, and I told him when, when she was out of the room, I'm like, Look, I'm gonna, when we go over the vows, I'm going to do your vows. Like I'm going to rehearse them like this, like love, honor, cherish. But for hers, I'm going to have love, honor, and I'm going to throw obey in there. Right? So, and she, oh, boy, you should have when, when you get to, okay, now so you love, you're going to love, honor, and obey. Wait, wait a minute. What did you say? <laughs> you know, but the point is this. When it, when it comes to rendering obedience, if I'm going to render obedience to a person, Hold on a minute. I'm only going to do that. What? I mean, that's something that we reserve for, I, I don't know for when, in our personal relations. But the point is, that's the highest expression we can give God of love. So it's funny to me, you hear people talk about obedience and obedience. We, 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 uh, I could go on, but I'm not going to because I, I want to get through this. So, but this is the idea I want you to understand is this, we're, what we're pointing out here is a counterfeit. Of Christianity. The study will bring that out and it won't bring it out in as many verses as many things as we've said here. The point of a lot of what we cover in the class is not that you're going to flesh this all out in your study. Oftentimes there are things that we've covered here and we will cover throughout the week that will sneak their way in the study in different places throughout. I mean I don't mean the study I mean the series that you're sitting down studying somebody with or a series is being preached or whatever else. But we're sharing it with you because I want you to understand, I'm going to tell you there's Seventh-day Adventists. It's unfortunate that some of us know little more than a person who sat down and gone through the subject for the first time. I mean, you just can't cover everything in the first time, and that's fine. Unless you've been in it for 10 or 15 years or more, then you should know more than the first-time lesson. And we ought to understand the issue behind it. There are Seventh-day Adventists that are backing off this whole Antichrist thing today and they're just like, no, it's just so... I mean, Seventh-day Adventists now. I'm not talking about the other Christian world. Seventh-day Adventists are like, hey, that's hate speech and stuff. I don't want to have part of that. We're, we're condemning the Catholics. We're not condemning the Catholics. We're uplifting Christ. There's a false Christ. And what, we're not going to say anything about it? Somebody has an imposter has taken the place of Jesus, my Lord, and I'm just going to be like, hmm, no. This is part of our message. And uh, it comes in those three angels, the everlasting gospel is preached at the end of time. So I hope you understand that, that this is, you know, it's not that we like to present things to people that are uncomfortable to present. (laughs) But, you know, a person goes to the doctor and they have cancer. As much as you might be pleased for your doctor to tell you, hey, everything looks fine. If you really knew you had cancer... You'd really want that doctor to tell you. You can tell, me, you can tell me everything different sitting here today, but the reality is you want to know. Oh yeah, you have two weeks, but I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you everything's fine. And in the same way, we have to, there are things that we have to share in, in, in the scripture that people need to understand. Now, um, let's go into the lessons were passed out except for to me. Who has one of those? I don't have mine right here with me. You got some extras over here. Let's look at the lesson, the It Is Written lesson. I'm going to show you how these points work out in the lesson. Okay? And again, your lessons, all your lessons are going to be similar. They're going to be similarities and, and what have you. So let's start out. Of course, there's a little story about the uh, um, Trojan War at first and the Trojan Horse. You know, sometimes those stories can be helpful. Sometimes in, in preparing a lesson, you'll think, hey, I've got another story I'd like to use. You can do that. But I'm jumping into the lesson itself. Question number one in the lesson asks, what does the Bible say about the Antichrist? So let's look it up. John, 2 John 1.7. What does the Bible say about... No, 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 no. Let's take a break. I forgot. I, I mean, I'm just like, whoo. Okay. Let's take a break. But I'm going to say, let's do about eight minutes. Let's go and pack it about quarter till... And then we'll go through the study, okay? Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you for the word of truth, and we ask now, Lord, for the guidance of your Holy Spirit as we seek to um, understand better how we can share your truth with others, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, now one thing I realized I don't want to do is go through everything in the lesson um, taking the same amount of time, what I do want to do is really focus in on the identifying characteristics of the Antichrist. That's going to be the core of your lesson. I will go through it, but we're not going to look everything up until we get into Daniel. So I just want to get, uh, want you to see the flow of the lesson. And on the key points, for example, let me just put this up here. Point number one in the It Is Written lesson is covered in questions one through three. Point number two is covered in questions four through six. Point number three is covered in questions seven through nine. Point number four is covered in ten through, I think it goes to, no, it goes to thirteen. Maybe it does go to fourteen, but the bulk of it is, I just have thirteen in my notes. Okay, Now, we've made this point before that when you give a lesson, let me just double check that. When this lesson does have 13 questions, but you don't have 13 points. You have four points. And what that means is not every question you give or go through in a Bible study is going to carry the same weight. So for example... If I'm establishing this point with questions one through three, what's going to happen is I'll probably save most of my commentary for after question three. So we'll go through, in other words, we may spend, we'll look up the text and we'll go through question one. And we may spend two minutes, three minutes on question one. And then we may spend two to three minutes on question two. Then we may spend eight minutes on question three. Because now we've made points one, two, and three, and then I'll flesh out the point that's being made there, then I'll move on to the next segment. In other words, there are, po- there are times in your study where some questions are going to bring things together, and you're going to- that's when you're going to expound where you've come to and make sure they're on the same page with you. You don't want to get down to the end of the study and then say, okay, now here are our main points and you want to take them along with you. And so once a certain point is made, I'm going to pause and I want to make sure that that's clear and then I'll move on. I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. But I just wanted to give you that breakdown. So let's start with question number one. What does the Bible say about Antichrist? It takes us to 2 John 1, 7. And it says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, you'll notice in the note here, it says the term antichrist is mentioned only in four passages. I gave you those already. All in the letters of John. Now, just so you understand, I gave you that information. But I'm not going to take the time in my lesson to go through all that information. I'm giving it to you so you know where it is. And for those who may be just coming in or even just for review... You need to be confident in what you're sharing, but that doesn't mean you share everything you know, that you even have time to share everything you know. So the lesson condenses it in a little note, and so we may go through lesson question number one, and then I may have the person I'm studying with say, could you read note number, the note underneath there? Or I might um, highlight some of it, in fact, when I'm preparing a lesson to give for a study, I'll fill in the blanks, and I'll also take a highlighter or a colored pen or something, and I'll mark out those key areas that I want to bring out in the study. If I have a story or an illustration that comes to mind, I'll write it in my study. That's what you're doing when you're preparing for a study. So when you're giving it, you know, you've got all that right there in your study. Maybe I Let's say I don't go over the whole paragraph there. Let's look through the paragraph, and I'll tell you what I mean. So it starts out... as we were reading, the term Antichrist is mentioned only in four passages of the Bible on the letters of John. In each case, the term is used to portray a false teacher or a deceptive power that corrupts faith with What within the church. While the prefix anti can mean against, it can also mean in place of. The Antichrist of the last days will not be an open opposer of Christ but will actually seek to take the place of Christ. Consider this. The great deception of the last days will result in, quote, all the world following the beast of Revelation 13. And it gives you the text of Revelation 13.8. Someone coming in open opposition to Jesus, standing against him and refuting the word of God, would not succeed in deceiving all the world, In other words, people aren't all going to fall for something like that, especially the Christian world, but a power espousing Christian virtues and appearing to represent God would be far more likely to deceive the planet. It was Lucifer who first wanted to take the place of Christ, and it is he who continually opposes and misrepresents him, but through whom or what will he work in 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 Earth's final days? Now, that's all good information. But let's say, first of all, if I'm going through this set of lessons with somebody, what has already happened in most cases? Okay, they've, re- they've gone through it, right? They've gone through, they've filled out the blanks, I've filled out my blanks. So I don't need to feel like I've got to read through the whole thing. We may go through question one, and what do you have there for question one? Well, this, many deceivers have gone out in the world. Uh, who do not confess Jesus is coming in the flesh? This is deceiver and an antichrist. And I may say, now, I want you to notice something on the note. I don't know if you caught this when you went through the lesson. But notice in that second paragraph, it says the prefix antichrist means what? You know, we think of the, and then that's where I may explain, now we think of it in terms of against, but it doesn't just mean against. It can also mean what? And notice the way I'm doing that. There's so much that I'm not, I'm trying, I want to get through the lesson, but there's methodology. I don't want to do all the talking in a lesson. I want them to respond, and so I'll say things like, "Even though I'm, you've read this before, and I'm asking you. You probably read this, you know, when you went through the lesson. But it, it notice it. The word antichrist doesn't just mean against; it can also mean, and that's how I'll do it. I want them to answer it. Why?
1: So they have an understanding.
0: I mean, if I tell them they can leave that study and say, yeah, that pastor told me that the Catholic Church is the Antichrist power. I don't want them to say that pastor told me, that person told me, that church member, that Seventh-day Adventist or whatever. I want them to see it in the Bible. I want them to understand from the lesson for themselves. I also don't want them to get sleepy on me because I'm doing a monologue. And they're just sitting there the whole time. So I'm going to ask them, point that out. I want to bring that point out. And then, I'll make, and then I'll comment on it. So I may say, you know, we read the Second John text. So notice the word, as it says here in that second paragraph, can also mean, Antichrist can also mean what? In the place, in the place of Christ. So no, I want you to notice what this is telling us. This is telling us, and I might say here in my study, now I know there's a lot of Christians today who think that the Antichrist is going to be some power, some opposer to Christianity. But what this is telling us from the way John has used this term antichrist, that an antichrist would be more likely an imposter inside of Christianity. A counterfeit of Christianity. Are you following that? So that, I'll explain it that way. Now I'm establishing this in the next... Um, and, and if I were... If, and I'm just, This is just going through it now, not having gone through this particular lesson. I went through my lesson, not this lesson as well as I should have, it was Lucifer, that last paragraph. I would highlight that one as two. I probably wouldn't, you know, the other, it's good, they read it, all the world and stuff. Maybe I'll comment to that uh, point, but I may say, when I get to the last one, we went through the the great controversy study, so I may say, now you remember that great controversy study that we had? Who was it who wanted to take the place of Christ? It was Lucifer. We may read that, or I may ask that question. And so, who really is behind all of this? When we're talking about the Antichrist, is Lucifer against Christ? Sure he is. But why? What's he want? He wants the worship that belongs to who? To Christ, right? We saw that he was in the wilderness and he said, if you will just fall down and worship me. And so the Antichrist is really a power that Lucifer is working through still trying to get that worship for himself. Now I brought that all out of this uh, text and the following paragraph. You follow that? Okay, So I I personally, reading through that, I wouldn't read through the whole thing again if I was giving the lesson. I would have highlighted a couple of those points to help to make my main point. Now let's see how the lesson addresses this further in question number two. Now when I'm giving a study, what I like to do is I like to ask the question, and then I'll ask them to read the text. And then I'll read the question again and ask them the answer. That keeps them engaged in the study. So I would say, question number two, how does the Bible describe the power that will bring spiritual danger to the world? Let's go to 2 Thessalonians 2.3 and look that up. Now, if they filled it out before, they've got it right there. So you can say now, so the, the, the text is 2 Thessalonians 2.3. Why don't you read to me what you have there? So I may do it that way. Now there are times when I, I may be giving a study and I didn't give them the lesson beforehand and then we'll look it up and, and do that together. But in this case, if they've done the lesson, I'll have them read it for me. And once they read it, so let's just read it together. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin or the man of lawlessness, depending on your translation, is revealed the son of perdition. And then I'll, so they read it, and I'll say, So, how does the Bible describe the power that will bring spiritual danger to the world? Now, we just read it, and sometimes they'll be like, mm, And I'll say, Well, look back at the passage there. How, how does the Bible, what wording, what terms does the Bible use to describe this power? Okay, the man of sin or the man of... It's interesting, in 1 John 3 and verse 4, anybody know what that says? Whoever transgress, whoever uh, um, <laughs> commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is transgression of the law. Or if you read it in a newer translation, it says sin is lawlessness. Okay? Transgression of the law. The word in the Greek is this word, anomia. Okay, this comes from the word nomos in the Greek, which means law. You don't have to know all this. The A is a negative. So it literally means lawless or against law or without law. That's why it's translated in a newer translation, lawlessness. That's the same word that it's using to describe the Antichrist power. He's lawless. That's not by accident. The Antichrist attacks the law of God, doesn't he? I may not bring that out at this point in the lesson, but... Um, I, I, it's in the description. So let's say, for example, we go to question two, and I have you tell me, how does it describe him? Well, the man of sin. And I may tell him, of course, if they're using the New King James, it says the man of lawlessness. It's the man of lawlessness. And I might tell him at this point, now, I want you to hold on to that, the man of lawlessness. Depends if I've studied the law yet. If I've studied the subject of the law, and we've already seen how the law has been attacked, Then I'm going to bring that out and say, now isn't that interesting? We talked about the attack on the law of God and how Christians today, even Christians today, are questioning whether we should keep the law. Isn't it interesting that the Antichrist is called the lawless one? So it's not not Christ who's trying to do away with the law, is it? It's the Antichrist. But if I haven't studied the law yet, I may say, now notice that the Antichrist power is called, the Bible calls him by the name the man of lawlessness hold on to that cuz we're going to see that coming up in a lesson. So I may put that in there. I'm just wanting them to make that connection. You're going to find as we go through different the different lessons that everything weaves together. They're not we, don't, we our truth is not a disconnected bunch of of information. But the point I want to the lesson doesn't get into it, but I want to get into in my lesson in this, if I'm using this one in particular is at last so it calls him the man of lawlessness what else does it refer to him as? Son of perdition. the son of perdition can you think of another place in the New Testament that uses that phrase the son of perdition okay John 17 now go here I would have this written in my margin boy I'd be going to this one and I'll see, you'll see why in a minute John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Boy, I've got to watch my time here. John 17. I'm going to have to move more quickly or move past some things. But I want you to see this one. John 17. Hey, I'm teaching in the morning, right? I got the first class. We so you can pick it up. John 17. And um, I want you to notice verse... 12, Jesus is praying to his Father. He says in John 17, verse 12, While I was with them in the world, speaking of his disciples, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except who? The son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, when you're speaking of his disciples, what's the only disciple he could have spoken of that that he lost? Judas. So who is he calling the son of perdition? Judas, was Judas a non-believer? Was he outside the Christian faith? No, he was inside. Did he betray Christ with a punch in the mouth? how did he betray him? With a kiss. Why? Because he wanted to make it look like what? He's on Christ's side. Now, isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul, when referring to the Antichrist, one who's in the place of Christ, calls him, it's the only other place in the New Testament that that phrase is used, the son of perdition. Uses it about Judas... And then here, about the Antichrist. Why? Because he's not a power outside of Christianity. It's a counterfeit inside of Christianity that pretends to be on Christ's side, but really wants the place of Christ. Okay? So I'll bring that out. That's helping me make point number one. That's important for people to understand. Wow, this is a power. Because, like I said, most of your Christian friends believe the Antichrist is going to be, and this is... Part of this goes with all the media, the Left Behind series and all this, that the Antichrist is going to be some suave European guy, some Nikolai Carpathia, if you ever followed, who's going to come in and he's going to deceive the Jews and blah, blah, blah. No, it's a power inside the Christian faith. Okay, number three, ask where did the Bible writers warn apostasy would see what arise from in earth's final days? And we'll just look at the passage here. I know this, Paul says in Acts 20, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, also from among yourselves, is what it says in the passage. Men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So you have established in the first three texts, that's, I'm, you know, I may spend a little bit of explanatory time, like I said, and then here I just want to really bring the point home. So you see, that the Bible's telling us, it's giving us clues that help us to understand that the Antichrist is not going to be power outside Christianity. It's going to come up inside Christianity as an imposter. Also, Paul warned, from among your own selves, they're going to be these men who rise up and speak perverse things. This is what the Antichrist is. It's a subtle counterfeit inside the Christian faith who's going to try to draw people away after himself. Oh, and 2 Thessalonians 2.4 goes right along with uh, question number three. So I didn't notice there was two texts there. Uh, Same thing. He sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. In the place of, right? It says in the place of, we talked about it being in the place of Christ. Here we see the Antichrist being described as one who sits in the place of Christ. Okay? So I'm going to make that point in those first few verses. And then we're moving into the next um, segment here. Now, Daniel, question number four asks, what did Daniel see emerging from a windswept area? And it takes us to Daniel chapter seven. And let's look at Daniel seven. And I'm probably going to spend more of my time looking at Daniel seven than the questions, the way it's formatted here. In fact, I think I'm going to do that before I run through the lesson. And we may even be running through the lesson in the morning. We'll look through the Bible once again, like Daniel two. You've got a narrative. Once you get into the identity of the Antichrist, it's not a text over here and a text over here. It's this read-through, the vision of Daniel 7. And Daniel 7 begins in the first year of... So if you've got your Bibles, open them to Daniel 7. He says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of who? Babylon. Daniel had dreams and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main Facts. Daniel spoke, saying, "I saw in my vision by night. Behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, and had what? Eagles' wings. I watched till his wings were plucked off, and it was made. It was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it." And suddenly, what? Another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four, what? Heads. And dominion was given to it. Now so far, what have we seen? What has Daniel seen? What has he seen? He's seen three beasts, right? We don't know the world empires yet. We're just looking at the vision and we see three beasts or animals, right? I mean they're not supposed And they what's that? The Great Sea. You know, that's a good question. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> I, You know, I've never even, Pastor Cameron, I've never even given thought to the sea that we're looking at here. So definitively, I can't say right offhand. The Great Sea. No, 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 no. But the, he asked if it's the Mediterranean. Like, what is he seeing in the vision? Is it... Where is he seeing this from? No, see him by. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I know Revelation seventeen fifteen. So I don't know. I don't know. Wherever Daniel was, he was having this vision. Anyway, I'll look that up. I can look that up. But, but Daniel saw. So far, he's seen three beasts. Are these the kind of beasts you've seen in the zoo? No, I mean, kind of-ish, right? Because I've seen a lion, I've seen a bear, I've seen a leopard, but not like these, right? Which tells us right away what? They're symbolic, okay? They're symbolic because they're not literal, anything that we have on the earth, with the exception of the bear with three ribs in his mouth, but you get the, the pattern. So sometimes you run into this stuff and people will argue things. Um, you know, how do you know they're they're not literal animals well tell me the last time you saw a lion with eagle's wings there you go anyway so he's seen three and then he comes to verse uh (laughs) verse six after this i looked no verse seven after this i saw in the night vision and behold a what fourth fourth beast beast, beast, dreadful and terrible. terrible exceedingly strong it had huge iron teeth It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up, what? Among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Anybody notice the marginal reading there for pompous in verse 8? Okay, it literally says great things, and we'll see that come up again. Pompous words, they translate it as, verse 9, I watched till thrones were now, okay, here's what I'm going to, uh, when I'm going through a study with somebody or when I'm doing an evangelistic meeting, I actually will skip over verses 9 and 10, uh, in fact, 9 to 14, just because of the time the sake of time because we come back to it later on in a series whether it's in bible studies or whatever because you're going to look at the judgment and look at that but um it 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 just is more time consuming now in your lesson your lesson's just not even going to go to those verses okay and so it'll help you out that way but i'm just telling you as we're reading through it i'm going to jump past that and bring up not that there's not good stuff in it But we're going to go to verse 15. Daniel sees all this. He says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings, it says, in most Bibles. Now, do you have a marginal reading? What's the margin say? Now, here's why the marginal reading can come in handy. Sometimes the marginal reading will give you a literal word, like what would have been the original word that he used, or sometimes it's a translator's note like this one. But this just shows you that it's not an Adventist interpretation. Okay? This, the, interpreter, the, the, the translators of this Bible, the Nelson Bible Publishing Company, put in this, you yeah, know, this is kings representing their kingdoms. Okay? Now, what we usually do is we just go further in the interpretation and it spells that out as well. But I just want you to notice some of the benefit of marginal. In fact, they give you the verse. You see that? If you do have a marginal reading, it says kings representing their kingdoms, and then points you to verse 23 because in verse 23 it says, "Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth what kingdom?" kingdom. Well, what's the implication? You can't be a fourth kingdom unless you had three more kingdoms that came before. And so that's usually where we go to establish that. So Daniel says, the interpretation he gives is, these are four kings or kingdoms which shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Daniel says, then I wish to know the truth about what? The fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet and the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words or great things, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching... And the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came. It talks about judgment being made in favor of the saints, um, which is that passage we read over. Verse 23, thus he said. Okay, so he's, in verse uh, 19, he says, I wish to know the truth. And then he gives all this description. And here's the angel's answer. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth what? Kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten, what, kings who will arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He, the other one, shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue, what, three kings. He shall speak pompous words. The word pompous is italicized. Do you see that? When you find an italicized word in the Bible, it means it's supplied by the translators. Not a huge deal right now. Not going to bring it up in my study, but I just want you to be aware of that. So literally, it would read, he shall speak words against the Most High. If somebody speaks against the Most High, that would be pretty pompous, wouldn't it? Therefore, the translators add the word pompous. Okay, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, shall intend to change times and law... Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to who? The people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me. And my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, if we wanted to take the time, if we wanted to take the time, we could go. And I'll tell you why I'm not doing this. If we wanted to take the time, I could go through and show you texts that clearly establish uh, what winds are and all of that. But we don't need it to make our point. And one thing that uh, Ellen White had counseled one of our pioneers, J. N. Andrews. If you know anything about J. N. Andrews, this guy was uh, a super scholar. Read the Bible in seven different languages. Had most of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament memorized. Said at one point that if the New Testament were blotted from existence, he could reproduce it from memory. Okay, and he didn't say it in a boastful way. He was a very humble man. He was our first official overseas missionary. But anyway, he was a scholar. And Ellen White had to tell Brother Andrews at one point, Brother Andrews, you have to be careful when you're sharing the truth that you don't bury the seed so deep that the green shoots never reach the surface of the earth. In other words, it never comes up and sprouts. Okay? You're so, and when you're sharing, there's so much that we could draw out of and be very thorough with the Antichrist. In fact, I, I have done it more that way in the past. I thought, well, it's controversial, so I want to just really nail it down, and here's 75 points that establish I'm being a little bit facetious there. But again, anyway, 13 points on the Antichrist. being You don't need 13 points. You, you, and so there are things that could be drawn out of the passage, but there are some very simple, clear points from this passage that are all you need to establish the identity of the Antichrist. So the first thing that you're going to do and what a lesson will do is it's going to establish that you're looking at a parallel of Daniel 2. This is very easy. You don't have to spend a lot of time on this. So I'm not, I'm not going to. I could give you all different kinds of proofs. But when you go through the vision of Daniel and you ask the person, so what have we seen so far? Well, we see these kingdoms. Are these, I'm sorry, these beasts, are they literal beasts? Have you seen them in a zoo? Well, no, I haven't. So that means they're what? They're symbols for something. Well, what are they symbols for? As you go on in your study, you're going to see that those four kingdoms, the fourth kingdom represents the, the, I'm sorry, the fourth beast represents the fourth kingdom on the earth, right? And so that implies three other kingdoms. So the four beasts represent four kingdoms. Have we seen four kingdoms before in Daniel? Now I'll ask the person this when I'm studying. I'll say, now remember we studied where where do you remember Four Kingdoms from? They'll be like, well, that we studied that image. That's right. And you remember when we studied that? I told you that that was what kind of prophecy. You guys remember? No, it was apocalyptic, but that's not it. It's a prophetic prophecy. Yes, it was. I said it was foundational. You remember that? And I always tell somebody, when we go to Daniel 2, I say, now this prophecy is foundational. It lays the groundwork for things we are going to see in the future. I tell them that in the study, and sure enough, here we are. And I say, remember that study? And I said that Daniel 2, that was foundational. What did we see? There were four medals. And then what happened to that fourth? The four medals, you remember what they were? What did they represent? The first one, the head of gold was? And I'll just ask them. They know because they've been through Babylon, what... What kingdom conquered Babylon? Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia. And then who conquered Medo-Persia? Greece. Greece. And then who conquered Greece? Rome. And then who conquered Rome? Nobody really conquered Rome. Rome fragmented, right, into the toes of the image, right? How many toes? Now what do we see? We see four beasts, and then out of the head of the fourth beast comes what? Ten horns. Ten horns. What, are we, what, what's the, what does it say? that what, Who is the... Who was the king when Daniel had this vision? No? Chapter 7, verse 1. Belshazzar, king of where? Babylon. So what do you think about these four beasts? Who do you think they represent? I'm going to tell you they represent the same four kingdoms. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And then the fourth kingdom, you have the division of Rome into its ten parts. And then the prophecy goes beyond that. Now... One of the things that I will do in my prophecy seminar, and you may have seen this, and it can come in handy. In fact, I wish I had done this today. Maybe I'll try to bring it tomorrow. How many of you have ever seen the Nuremberg Rathaus in Nuremberg, Germany? It's a courthouse. Anybody ever seen pictures of this place? Built in the 1600s. Pastor Cameron's seen it. Okay, some of you have, you know, seen. Uh, you can find them on the internet. And what's interesting is it was built in the 1600s during the Protestant Reformation. And on two entrances is a building. Above the entrance, uh, on on one of the entrances, for example, you're looking at it. And on one side, there is a a soldier beside a beast. And on the other side is a soldier. So here's one entrance and there's a soldier and a beast and here's a soldier and a beast. Then you go to the other entrance on that side and there's a soldier and a beast and a soldier and a beast. Now here's what's interesting. The beasts are a lion, a bear, I'm sorry, a lion with eagle's wings, a bear, a leopard with four heads and four wings, and a dreadful beast. And the soldiers are all dressed differently. They're dressed in the characteristic uniform of different nations. What do you think the soldier by the lion is wearing? Babylonian uniform. What about the one by the bear? I mean, you know, Persian uniform. And then you come over by the... The leopard and the soldier is in a Greek outfit. And then, of course, you have the Roman soldier by the dreadful beast. Now, all that's saying is that this is not a new interpretation. This has been around as long as Protestantism. And so some of these things help people because, you know, some people are hearing this for the first time. Like, you know, and, and this tells us that for many years that these nations have been identified. Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome. okay. Now, another thing that you can do, I'm not going to do at the moment, just for sake of time. In fact, in my my, uh, Bible Docs lessons, you have the passages that point you to a couple places, for example, in Jeremiah, where it tells you, where Jeremiah refers to Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon as a lion coming up out of his thicket. In another place, he refers to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army as coming on eagle's wings. And so you have imagery in the scripture. You go back. Here's another uh, piece of evidence. Archaeological evidence. How many of you know what the Ishtar Gate is? It was the gate into Babylon. Look it up. It's in the, I think it's in the, I don't know which museum it's in now. They have re- reconstructed it. I think it's in the British Royal Museum. But I'm not positive. But uh, you can get pictures of this on the internet. Is it in Pergamum? This This, um, But you can get pictures of the Ishtar Gate, and one of the things that they had on the Ishtar Gate that was a common figure in Babylon were lions with wings. Okay, So in other words, the Lord's employing a symbol that people understood referred to Babylon. Once Once you can give some biblical evidence that you've got four kingdoms, and the first one starts with Babylon, and it says about the fourth one here, where was it? As the angel is describing to Daniel the fourth one, he says, the fourth one shall devour the whole earth. Well, what, what are we talking about? We're talking about a world empire, right? Right. We've used before the king of kings. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of kings, using language. And then the third kingdom, which will rule over all the earth. Now you have the fourth kingdom in Daniel 7 that's going to rule over all the earth. You're talking about world empires. If you can establish that first one as Babylon, which is easy to do, and let's see, you've got four, and then the ten horns... I've never had to prove this to somebody. In fact, in, in most of the time in evangelistic meeting, it's, it's like this. You remember in algebra class when the teacher would have you work out the problem and solve for X, right? X equals what? 2X plus 1 equals 7. And you have to work out the problem. How do you know you got it right? Okay, if somebody, that's what my teacher always said, plug it in, right? Put it back in. When you get done with the Antichrist, nobody's going to be like, how are you sure the four kingdoms of Babylon made a Persian I'm telling you, when you're done with the identifying characteristics and like, boom, there it is. It happened just like it said. They're not going to be questioning that first part. And so I really don't spend a lot of time establishing. I just say, look, we looked at this in Daniel 2. You remember that? The four kingdoms? Here we are again in Daniel 7, the four kingdoms. Um, something else I'm going to share. I, I can see I'm going to be picking up on this in the morning because I don't want to rush through it. So I'm going to take uh, the time to tell you some other, something else when it comes to Daniel, that may be helpful to you. How many of you know what a chiasm is? It's a a chiasm. Crack, a big crack in the ice. Yes, a big <laughs> crack in the ice. A chi- that's a chasm. Oh. <laughs> a chiasm is a way of writing that parallels thoughts. And it was commonly used in, well, he- Hebrew, Greek, and um, Aramaic, employed chiasms. But he, th- this is something that's very interesting. A chiasm will take um, in fact chiasm gets its name from the Greek letter chi which is an X. Now this, may, this makes little sense to me but this is, it's true. Okay? So the idea is that the X you have parallel thoughts. So in a chiasm you'll have point point one, two three, four, five, six. In fact, let me do it like Daniel does it. But you, you, you see the X here? That's why they call it a chiasm. Because they parallel, they invert the parallel. Whoever decided to write it out inverted the parallel and said, hey, that's kind of like an X. Let's call it a chiasm. Look it up. It's true. doesn't make a lot of sense, but that, that's the reality. That's where it got its name from. Okay? But the Hebrew writings... It, you, find, you find a lot of chiastic writings in the Hebrew. Now, here's the point. This is why this is important here. Daniel employed a chiasm in writing these prophecies. But here's what's really interesting. Is that in Daniel, take, look at Daniel chapter 2. And I had it right. I, was, I, I had it right with my, my 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. I'm going to put that back up here. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and six. And of course you see, these are parallel, these are parallel, these are parallel. That's, that's the way that it's um, uh, structured, a, a chiasm. Huh? I will in just a minute. You're going to get it in just a minute. So I want you to notice Daniel 2, verse 3. Daniel 2, verse 3, the Bible says, And the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in what? Aramaic. Aramaic. Now, I want you to note right here. Daniel switches from writing in Hebrew to writing in Aramaic. And he continues writing in Aramaic all the way through chapter 7. And then he picks back up in Hebrew in chapter 8. So chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. And chapters two through seven, Daniel put in a chiasm. Okay, he paralleled his thoughts, and this is what I mean by that. What, what is a parallel?
1: Two lines that never touch.
0: Okay, parallel is when the parallel ideas are what? Similar. Ideas that are similar, right? Okay. So he started his chiasm. Don't get through. Maybe I should have done it and put two, three, four, five, six to correspond with the chapters in Daniel. In fact, I'll do that because otherwise you're going to get really mixed up. So Daniel chapter 2 is where he starts his chiasm, and then 3, and then 4, and 5, and 6, and 7. What's Daniel 2 about? I'm just going to call it four kingdoms, okay? It's actually five. I should put five kingdoms, right? Because it's the four worthy kingdoms and then the eternal kingdom, right? Okay, what's Daniel 7 about? Huh, five kingdoms, right? I mean, you got the Antichrist, but what is it? You've got the four, and then here comes the, the saints are going to possess the kingdom, the everlasting. So you got five kingdoms, right? What's Daniel 3 about? Anybody remember Daniel 3? Okay, but what's it about? The story's about? Okay, the fiery furnace, right? Um, man's encouraged to bow down to the image. So we've got basically man's law versus God's law. Can we say that? Can I do that? Will you follow me if I do that? Man's law versus God's law. In the, in the story of the fiery furnace. What's Daniel 6 about? You remember the story in Daniel 6? Daniel and the lions. lions then. What's that about? Oh, look at that. Man's law versus God's law, right? Now, what I want you to understand is that this is not an accident. It's not like, oh, hey, how coincidental. It wasn't coincidental. Daniel specifically intended to write in a chiasm. He didn't get done and say, oh, that's interesting. He, he specifically and intentionally wrote those chapters to form a chiasm. What's Daniel 4 about? You remember? Okay. You've got... How do I want to say that? You basically have um, God, God's encounter with, uh, with a heathen king. However you want to put it. Right, Nebuchadnezzar is, you've got God gives his vision to Nebuchadnezzar, and then Nebuchadnezzar goes and wanders for seven years like an animal, and then Nebuchadnezzar is converted, right? What is Daniel 5 about? Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, that was what? So basically, you've got a heathen king's encounter with God, and a heathen king's encounter with God. One turns out well, one turns out not so well, right? But they're parallel, right? Now, the reason I'm showing you this, again, is you don't accidentally stumble upon a chiasm. Daniel, when he was writing, he switched language, and then in his Aramaic, he parallels. Now, Daniel, in writing, paralleled Daniel 2 and 7. What's the chance that the kingdoms of Daniel 7 are the same as the kingdoms of Daniel 2? So I'm just telling you this. Now, I don't share this in a study. I have shared it in some studies. In some. But when I'm giving a study on this, I'm not breaking this out. But what this does is it gives me confidence to know I have not the slightest shadow of a doubt that I'm dealing with Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the breakup of Rome into 10 parts and the rise of the papal power. Not the slightest shadow. You might, I've had evidence that are like, well, you know, I'm not just sure about that anymore. What do you mean you're not sure about that? It's, it's, it's as solid as solid can get. And so I'm just sharing that as another one of those pieces of evidence that can help you to know, look, people are going to throw curves at you. People are going to throw things and say, well, how do you? Because it's that's because that's what the Bible's teaching. Okay, this is this is and, and the reality is you uh, you're not going to have I, like I said I don't have people I've never had people challenge me when I refer back to Daniel two and say what do you think these four kingdoms are? Okay, now what we're going to do is in the morning I want to zero in on we're going to start out just zeroing in on those counter those uh, characteristics of the fourth kingdom and typically in a study again you're going to go through daniel 7 it's not going to take you long to give the introductory part of it and to lead up you really want to spend the bulk of your time think about this in daniel chapter 7 how many verses does he spend talking about the first three kingdoms and then how many verses does he spend talking about the fourth kingdom and the antichrist And so you want to do the same thing. When you're actually giving the study, you don't spend your whole study talking about the first three kingdoms. We're going to bump past that. That's why I'll say, look, four kingdoms divided into ten parts. That's what we saw in Daniel 2. Boom, let's go to that fourth kingdom just like Daniel wanted to. And then we'll spend the bulk of our time explaining that. So in the morning, that's what I'm going to do, is we're going to look at those characteristics, because I want you to be clear on those characteristics. And then we'll look at the lesson and how the lesson walks through that. And any lesson you give, they're going to do it a little bit differently. But they're all going to walk through the same stuff. And some lessons will probably, what does this one use anyway? Let me see how many points they make. They've got 10 10 points, 10 characteristics. And I told you, I'm kind of shying away from trying to give so many. I'd rather have the few clear points, and we'll talk about that in the morning. You guys have been good. You've been attentive. Some of you had questions about materials. You can ask me that after class. And we'll look forward to seeing you at 9 a.m. Okay, sound good? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, again, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, I, I ask for each one of us here. We live in momentous times, Lord. You've called for a special message to go to the world, to prepare the world for the coming of Christ. The enemy has come up with a counterfeit that has and is deceiving multitudes. And Lord, we're just asking that you would help us to be your voice and your channel through whom you can work that souls will be saved for your kingdom. Bless us now in the remainder of this day. I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to what the, the, the things you have yet to share with us this day during this camp meeting session. Bless all the speakers and seminars, Lord, and all of your people. May we experience true revival through your Holy Spirit. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name.
1: Amen.